So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Uh, not much of a lengthy intro today because it is nearly one in the morning. I'm very tired. And in about six hours' time, I need to be up again because a health visitor is coming to tell me if I'm fit to be a father. Uh, because my son Harvey is 10 months old this week. Uh, and you get your visit. It's the standard visit from the NHS. We haven't been referred to social services. Uh, but anyway, that is why I'm recording my podcast now rather than in the morning, uh, ignoring my son as he cries in his high chair and I'm struggling to find the most soundproof space in my house to talk to you. Uh, so hello. Uh, this week's interview is with a man who's been on the inside of Al-Mahajaroon, the terrorist group that used to campaign outside mosques in the UK for the foundation of an Islamic State. Uh, It's pretty strong stuff. It's pretty compelling, though. I talked to him about how he got drawn into a life of extremism and just how far he was prepared to go to terrorise innocent people. Uh, And also what we can do now to stop young British people becoming radicalised. It's not like the interviews that you hear about this subject on the radio or on the telly, usually, I think. It's more detailed. It's more frank. Um, I'm really proud of it. I think you'll get something out of it. I hope so. Uh, So without further ado, in today's episode, uh, you will learn what a bouncy asshole is. Uh, You will learn why this season it's all about being a balanista, possibly. Uh, And you'll learn why there's sometimes a romantic side to joining an extremist organisation. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. It felt like I was part of a family. The people beside me would die for me. Life inside Britain's most notorious jihadi terror group. The staircase in your house might actually prove to be an actual stairway to heaven. And Alex Fox has the right steps for your sex life when you're the same height as your partner. But first, it's time to fill your brain with all the crap that other people have in their brains but you're too busy to focus on with Ollie Peart and the Zeitgeist. What is your first trend of the week this week? Anti-tech-tech. And again. Anti-tech-tech. Anti-tech-tech. Yes. Just imagine you've put on an amazing dinner party. You've invited a few friends over. You've gone to extreme lengths. You've gone out to uh, Waitrose. You've decided to go for the uh, the Lapsang smoked salmon instead of the normal one. You've uh, got all your ingredients for your lamb moussaka. Yeah, I get it, Ollie. You've painted a picture with words very successfully, yes. I'm putting on a dinner party. What next? What's the point? The doorbell rings. Uh Your friends walk in. Yeah. And they ask you, what's the Wi-Fi code, Ollie? And you think, oh, for goodness sake. And from there, it's downhill. Yes. They're on their phone. They're apologising. Sorry, I'm being antisocial. Enter, Ollie. Anti-tech-tech. But you're about to tell me that I should spend 200 quid to erect a tent around my dining table, I'm guessing. Whereas, in fact, I could just not give them the Wi-Fi code, right? Almost. Yes. Sort of. Not yes. a tent, a box. Okay. There's numerous devices which have, I've, I've noticed recently that are popping up all over the place. Uh, the most common are these boxes. There's two. There's one called Pause, 
And basically, it's a box that holds six phones that you just stick on the middle of the table, put wow. your phones in, and it blocks all the signal. So actually, it's literally a box that blocks the mobile it, signal. Yeah, that's all. So it, the problem with that, though, is... Emergencies. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My grandma's in hospital, my babysitter's been hired. It's that stuff, isn't it? I mean, if your wife's pregnant, for example, and yeah. you're not with her, don't put your phone in the pause box. That's just stupid. Why is that making you less of a dick than if when people came in, you said, I want you to turn off your mobile phone to put them on silent. Because that would make me feel like a dick if I said that to people. Why is showing them a fun box that says pause on it, why does that make me less of a dick? Is it because it's got like a fun novelty thing? Yeah, exactly. It's more like a dinner party game, isn't it? You say, yeah. come on, guys, put your phone in the box. Yeah. We'll have a great time. This is going to be wicked. <laughs> yeah. There's one that's a bit more risky, though. This one's called Distractagon, which is a rubbish name. It sounds like a, a product on a JML display, doesn't it? Distractagon. It sounds Something. like a round on the crystal maze. This thing, what it does is you put your phone in it and then it locks it for a set period of time. So if you set it for an hour, yeah. that's it for an hour. Can't get in at all. Whereas oh. with pause, you can obviously just take your phone out whenever you want. So it's way more risky. You're basically saying, look, you're going to be staying in my house for two hours. What if the dinner party's rubbish? What if the lap sam- smoked salmon is just awful? Yes. You can't escape. And there's more devices. So like the dumb phone, for example, there's a phone called Punked. And what it does is it, it links through to your your smartphone, Mm -hmm. but it only receives calls. You can only make calls and send and receive text messages. Okay, so why not just get a 3210 then? Because it's not called punked, (laughs) P-U-N-K-T, and it doesn't cost £229 and make you look cool. Because I've toyed with this idea as iPads get ever thinner and lighter and larger. iPads? Yeah. That is so two years ago. (laughs) No one's buying iPads no more. Well... uh do you not have a tablet of any description? I did. Got rid of it because I got an iPhone, like a normal person. Right, okay. Well, anyway, I love my iPad, and I was thinking that actually I could get myself a top-spec iPad Pro that's got all my social networking on it. You look a bit of a dick using it to take pictures or Google Maps. Bit but off. I'd bit te- off. I'd take that, especially with wireless headphones now. I could listen to podcasts on it without people knowing what I was using to stream them. And then as my phone, go back to using a Nokia 3210 because that clearly is the best phone ever invented for phone calls and it lasts for a week, battery-wise. But you look like a drug dealer. Yeah, or you like you're having an affair. Yeah. Yeah, or both. I mean, drug dealers can have an affair too. It's not mutually exclusive. Point is, I thought about it and then I decided, no, there's just too many occasions now, things like WhatsApp, where I'm not going to be looking at my iPad, but I would want to see that notification. Well, WhatsApp notifications, actually, I find incredibly irritating. Yeah, they are, but you're in the wrong groups, mate. Uh, what else have we got this week, Ollie? Balanistas. Uh-huh. I've invented that word. You'd never tell. Ballet is the new black. Okay. I mean, I'm fighting the urge, obviously, to say no, it isn't, but I'll sit on it just for a minute until you tell me why it is. Well, according to Glamour magazine... Right. It's my favourite bog-based read. Is uh, it re- in all seriousness, if you read a woman's magazine on the bog, is it Glamour? Is that the one you like? Because yeah. I choose new. Do you? Yeah. I don't... Or sometimes look. I don't choose it. It's whenever I'm at my sister's house. Right, yeah. She has Glamour magazine. So you haven't read around the women's magazines? No. See, my wife is quite promiscuous with those things, and so she tries various different brands. You know, so I'm making an informed choice here. If it's yeah. look, I pick it up. If yeah. it's glamour or Cosmo, I don't even look. Really? Yeah. Either way, yeah. their suggestion is that ballet trend is the prettiest autumn winter look for 2016. So for women? Yeah, but I think it actually would translate into men's as well. Because How? I've noticed, well, because in like shops and that, that mm. I have been to, mm. I've noticed loads of plain grey tracksuits. And if that doesn't say ballet, I don't know what does. Well, tutus. But yeah, Lace. obviously, but not for men, is it? Shoes if you're, if, without well, heels. How do men ballet people wear grey tracksuits all the time? Yeah. They turn up at the dance hall in grey yeah. tracksuits. Okay. 
if you want to achieve the look, the, the main thing you really need is really simple pumps. You remember like the uh, like you had at school? They use the word pumps. That's what fashionistas use, pumps. I say plimsolls or oh, really? trainers. I yeah. say sneakers because I've got transatlantic oh, appeal. God. Do you really say that? Yeah, I've got to think about my American listeners, Ollie. That's why in the interview the other week when the guy was talking about living in a skip, I said dumpster, just so that they understood. I asked it's like I question. never say jumper on a podcast. What do you say? Sweater. I say sweater, yeah. Oh. In my heart, I'm saying pullover. Well, you just need those. You just need sneakers yeah. and uh, shades, anything that's shades of nude. So, like, you know, yeah, greys and skin colour. What else have you got for us this week, Ollie? <laughs> you don't like that one. I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just moving us on. Like a fluid ballet. Inspirational wall quotes. Please tell me is not going to be a trend because it's already been everywhere for years and it's making me sick. The death of... Thank God for that. Yes. I I agree. uh... I'm with you. It's time those things died. Absolutely. Uh, So give an example of the kind of thing that you're talking about that's over. Because I'm thinking corporately, Mm. where it says things like, there's no I in team, things like that, where it says that on someone's wall. Yeah. That kind of thing makes me feel literally physically sick. But what, what in people's houses do you see? Well, I'm going to give you some examples, but yeah. I've turned it into a game. Oh, but, amazing. But before I do, right. I just want to say yeah. that some research done in Canada suggests that people that put these on their Facebook wall, like all the quotes, mm. are actually slightly less intelligent than other people. Okay. Do you want to play the game? It means we get to finish afterwards, right? I've called it Pin to Give It a Rest. <laughs> That's actually good. So rude. <laughs> right, you've got to guess yeah. which of these are real and which ones I have created. Yes, okay. And by the way, if anybody listening likes the ones I've created, feel yeah. free to print them up and stick them on your wall. They could be the next uh, Keep Calm and Carry On. Okay, right, you ready? Yes. You are braver than you believe, stronger than you seem, and smarter than you think. That's real, I could imagine a Kardashian posting it. Okay, ready for the next one? Yes, this will be one you made up just for balance. I'm not weird, I'm a limited edition. That's, again, quite good, but I think you made it good, up. Good, it's not good. <laughs> it's not good and it's real. Well, when Listen. I said good, I mean it's of the type, you know, I could see it on a t-shirt, yeah. I'm not weird, I'm a limited edition, yeah, I quite like it. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Do something today that your future self will thank you for. I'm sure I've seen that on a wall at Facebook HQ, so I'm saying real. That's real. Yeah. Ready for the next one? Yep. Booze never hurt anyone except George Best, and he was just fucking cool. <laughs> you must have made that up. I did make that up, yeah. but feel free to Because have it's a bit too good. <laughs> Although, obviously, it makes light of, you know, someone's serious problems with alcoholism. It's yeah, probably cool. why it wouldn't make it onto a T-shirt. But he did make light of his own alcohol problems. Oh, so that's fine, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it makes it perfectly yeah. acceptable. Sure. Friends, food and fun. The only F words I need. Definitely real. I could imagine that on a cushion my grandma would have in her house. I made that one up. Oh, well. Yeah. It's good. I thought I'd go quite schmaltzy. What is it again? Friends, food and fun, the only F words that I need. It's good because, um, you know, you've got the double meaning there. Mm. You know, so so it's like you give it to your grandma because your grandma doesn't say the word fuck, but then she puts the pillow on her seat as if to say these are the things that I believe in. I'm not a complete moron. No, there's a scale, isn't there? Everyone's on a scale. Come on, there's three more. Yeah. You have to be odd to be number one. That's crap. Um, I think you did make that up, but it is crap. No, that's real. Okay. Next one? Yes. Love, live, and light up your life. Well, love, live, and laughter, I think, are the three that you see commonly listed like that. Right. Live, life, love, I think it is. And that's everywhere. Like, it's the keep calm and carry on of 2016. So I can well imagine that the one you just read out is a spin-off of that. So you, you may have made it up, but if you did, it's very much in the trend. I made it up. Right. I basically bastardised. I could imagine it yeah. on, a, on a T-shirt that was printed in a country where English isn't their first language, but nonetheless managed to achieve mainstream distribution because of the price they were able to sell it at a retail value. Do you want the last one? Please. 
excuse the mess, but we actually live here. <laughs> Again, I can imagine that written on a bar in a pub that's dirty, so yes. Yeah, that's definitely real. I mean, actually, that is a trend that you see in pubs, isn't it? They've started using pub blackboards to put on kind of little philosophical takeaways that you can walk around. They do it on the tube as well, don't they? They put little quizzes on them and stuff. That's right, yeah. Maybe the wall quote is evolving into the kind of wall fact. Yeah, and actually there's been more of them this year because they sort of uh, use the horrible, depressing news that's been happening to Mm. sort of say, why not come in and have a cup of coffee because the world's awful? Yeah. That's what they do. So it's probably not the death of the wall quote, it's probably the evolution of the wall quote that we're about to see. Well, actually, what they call it in Silicon Valley, I think, is an iteration. They get someone to come in and and do their walls 2.0. I don't want to go to Silicon Valley if that's how they talk. Uh, If people have a trend that they'd like you to talk about... At uh, The Modern Man on Twitter. At The Modern Man on Twitter, yeah. Yep. See you next week. See you next week. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Time now for me to introduce you to Adam Dean. Adam is the managing director of the Killiam Foundation, an organisation dedicated to counter-extremism, attempting to prevent the radicalisation that causes the terrorist atrocities that we've seen in London and New York, and recently in France, of course, in Paris and Nice. But for years, Adam was himself an Islamic extremist. He was a leading member of Al-Mahajaroon, the group led by notorious radicals like Omar Bakri Mohammed and Anjum Chowdhury. Uh, Adam, though, didn't grow up in an environment you'd imagine would foster extremism. Quite the contrary. As he told me, the first step that he took towards radicalisation was an unremarkable encounter after attending an unremarkable prayer service in 1995. I remember coming out of the mosque on a Friday afternoon and uh, I saw a young man handing out leaflets and I was quite intrigued because he was roughly the same age as I was. I greeted him and I said, what's that? And he said, uh, you should read it, brother. And I, I took the leaflet and it said it was an obligation for all Muslims to establish an Islamic state, the Khilafah. And I was really intrigued because I'd never heard this word before. He was young, he was articulate, and he presented Islam in this kind of intellectual terms, if you like. And so we started having a conversation. My journey into extremism didn't happen by just seeing one person with these ideas. I met different people in different scenarios. So I met someone on a high street, sort of evangelizing, if you like. Uh, I met someone at university different people, different aspects of my life. And this was a culmination of many, many factors that led me to sort of join an organisation. Because for me, it was very much intellectual. They had an, an argument. I mean, looking back now, it was a very pseudo-argument, pseudo-intellectual argument, and it's easy to break down. But then it was the only game in town, really. It was the idea that I was part of something bigger than myself. I was part of this mission, this project to re-establish the Islamic State, that I, my identity was purely defined by my religion. I was a Muslim. And 
I was part of this global project to re-establish virtue in the world. I think it was that. Because now, obviously, we're looking at this through a different lens. You're describing life in the mid-1990s, right? Correct. So now, if you say the word Islamic State to a teenager, they're going to be thinking about what they see on the news. They're going to be thinking about repressing women and flogging homosexuals and all that stuff. Yes. Presumably you then focused on the virtue. This was actually a bright new tomorrow you'd be helping create. Yes, it, it was a a state that would bring back justice in the world. It would defend Muslims because Muslims were being killed by the West and that there would be a state that would actually defend Muslims and their rights and also eradicate all the kind of immorality in the world, especially in the West. It was a, a way of looking at verses in the Quran and applying it to geopolitics, which I'd never seen before. So what's it like when you go to an al Mahadrin social? I mean, what does that feel like? It felt like I was part of a family. The people beside me would die for me. And if I had any problem in my life, whether it was a social problem, whether an economic problem, if, if I needed money, they would be there to help me. It felt like a really tight-knit family. And were there women there? Women, yes. See, in the early days, Al-Mahadrun were not Wahhabist. So, we, you know, we would have stalls in various parts of London. I mean, I was one of the ones that opened up majority of them in London. And we would have women there and men at the same stalls giving dawah. And I'm curious whether there was any romantic links between men and women in that organisation. <laughs> well, I think it's fair to say that part of the interaction was to find a potential wife. Yeah. yeah. Which is, I mean, you know, if you ask any 18 or 19 year old, why did yes. you join the such and such society? That's yes. often part of the well, reason. Yes. Except and you wouldn't expect it from a fundamental yes. Islamic group. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's um, yes. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the events involved individuals coming to the event trying to find a future wife as well. It wasn't just for the lecture. At the prime of my extremism, if you like, sort of halfway through my 20s, I was quite happy. I thought... I was serving God. I thought I had a community. I had friendships that were genuine friendships, that these people loved me and they would do anything for me. I felt a sense of camaraderie and I didn't have that before up until that point. And so I was happy. So this is leading up to the period of 9-11. Yes. What were you doing on the day of 9-11? Well, I... Um, I switched on the TV and saw the news and just sat down and thought, well, what, what's going on here? And the first tower got, was hit and then, then I saw the second tower and then it was confirmed it was a terrorist attack. So at that moment, at the sense of elation, I was full of joy and I called up Omar Bakri Mohammed, who was the, the leader of our organisation and founder, and I said, Omar, have you seen the news? Have you seen what's happening in America? And he said, yes, brother, I see it. This is a very serious time. Um, I will uh, meet all of you brothers later. So he put the phone down and then I called up one of my friends in the organization um, who incidentally now is doing time for terrorism. Um, I called him up and said, are, are you watching the news? And he said, yes. And he came over, uh, drove, drove to my house and we got in the car. And we drove down Green Street celebrating and beeping the horn and, and saying, have you heard, brother, America has been hit. So that's what I was doing on 9-11. What was 
the reaction to you know ordinary Muslim Brits well, going about their well, business? They you were stopping and imploring to celebrate. Completely bamboozled. They didn't. I mean, I still remember the expression on on the chap's face. There's this old kind of Bengali man just looking at me, thinking, "This is madness." Well, you know, what are you doing? And that was the general reaction. It was only us that was celebrating. What did you think was going to happen next? Because, I mean, in many ways, what happened next was sort of obvious, wasn't it? There had to be some military reaction from the US. First, that was Afghanistan, and then it escalated. Yes, and when they spoke about invading Afghanistan, we were happy. And we actually thought that the Taliban were going to win, because we beat the Russians. We thought we were going to beat the Americans. And we were happy about it. We wanted troops on the ground. You see, it's funny, isn't it, when you associate yourself with the Taliban, what's your life at this time? You're living in London? <laughs> yes, a normal day job. I think I was in IT at the time. I mean, did anyone around you know your feelings about these things? Because you didn't go into work celebrating the day after. No, the actually, I think, to be exact, that particular time, I don't think I was working. I think I was sick or there was some, I had an illness at the time. But prior to that I did have a job in a sort of a top 10 solicitor firm working in, in the IT department and I was very vocal about my views and I remember every other day the whole office would not be working but having a, a debate or a discussion with me about my views I was a bit of a troublemaker at work if you like yeah I bet <laughs> yeah Obviously, the irony is if you were in a country like an Islamic state and you had a view that was that contrary to the orthodoxy of, yes. of public thinking, you would be killed. I would be killed, yes, absolutely. It was only because you were in a liberal democracy that you were able to sit there in office and say, this is a liberal democracy that should be ended by a war. And that kind of thinking didn't work on me at that time. I couldn't work that out for myself because when you join these kind of extremist organisations, you end up giving up your rational faculty. Someone else thinks for you. The leader thinks for you. You're not allowed to think outside of it. And part of your commitment to that thinking is because you have so much trust in, in the organisation and your leader. But you're British. You were born in Britain. Yes. So did you want Britain to become an Islamic state? Was yes. that the goal? Yes, absolutely. It wouldn't have appealed to you to go and live in Afghanistan. Um, I think at one point there was I was flirting with the idea to go to Pakistan. <laughs> um, that was the closest thing. Well, you don't have any ethnic roots at no, all? No, none at all. Uh, it's the second to, to Afghanistan. But yeah, no ethnic roots whatsoever. It's, it's, it's crazy now when I think about it. I mean, I wonder what they would have made of you in Pakistan if you'd have turned out. Well, you know, funny enough, I had friends that went to Pakistan that were born and bred here, educated here and who were Pakistani and when they went over there you know people asked them why did you come to Pakistan and they said well we want to live an Islamic life and and people laughed at them they said that's hilarious and many years later they came back I mean we had this idea that we didn't fit in we were like a fish out of water living in in London you know this kufr infidel society we had to there was this yearning for an Islamic state and the nearest thing was probably pakistan but even if you see the islamic state as being something that is about virtue mm. well actually especially as you see it like that mm. how does that manifest itself in young extremist mind as a cycle of violence if it's all about virtue yes how does it end up with picking up a gun or putting on a backpack and blowing something up because the violence is a consequence of the duty to establish the state because then it transformed because there's resistance then, then, then one needs to take up 
violence in order to defend Muslims and also establish the Islamic State. So violence comes later. The initial start of the journey is about this virtue, it's about morality, it's about truth and speaking out, out against falsehood. Then the violence comes later. I mean, you're trying really eloquently to explain it to me. Right. I'd sort of get it if the target was always the American embassy, but it isn't. The mm. target is often, you know, as in the case uh, here on 7-7, yeah. some trains, and if we don't get on a train, a random bus. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. You're clearly just killing innocent people. Yes. Well, you see, that's justified because it's a means to an end. The way that an extremist thinks, well, they're killing our innocent people. And if we kill enough of their innocent people, maybe they'll stop. That's the view. That's the idea. But you did see yourself as British, so you must have had some uh, feeling of... No, I didn't see myself as British. My identity changed. I was... <laughs> this is our, uh, our mantra. You're a Muslim living in Britain. Mm. You're not a British Muslim. And how fringe is that? Very fringe. But it doesn't take a, a mass movement to cause trouble, to cause an incident like a terrorist attack. It's fringe. Mm. But the intensity of that fringe movement is enough to cause havoc. So you mentioned one of your colleagues is now serving time for terrorism. Yes. What did he do? He was actually um, caught with a, an Uzi. And he was someone that went to Afghanistan on a number of trips during the invasion and uh, also asked me to join him at one stage. Yeah, so he's serving quite some time in prison now. Have you spoken to him or visited him? I haven't. I haven't. The last time I spoke to him was before he was, I think about a few months before he was arrested. How close did you get to doing something like that then? I mean, he said, come to Afghanistan with me. There were two occasions where I thought of being involved in a sort of subgroup that would engage in some kind of acts of violence. Um, the first group was set up by a, an external member to the organisation who was a convert and he was an ex, from what we were told, he was ex-SAS. And a group of us would meet in the notorious Finsbury Park Mosque in the basement of all the places to meet. And we spoke in detail about committing a terrorist attack. Which was what? Tower Hill tube station. We specifically spoke about that tube station because of the, geographically, it was next to water, the, the river, that if it blew up, that it would completely flood the tube system. That was one of our potential plots. And so how far down the road were you psychologically in being ready to do that? You see, that's an interesting question. You know, I look back and I am mortified that I actually even went to those meetings. My concern was, looking back now, am I going to be prepared well enough to go through with this? That was my concern. But that was logistics, not psychology. Yeah, it was logistics. Um, so you were mentally ready? I think I was open to the idea, which is quite worrying, yes. And would it have been a suicide mission? I didn't think that far ahead. I, I don't know if I would be the one putting the bomb there, but I was going to be part... The plan was I was part of this operation. Maybe I'd be the guy that drove the person there. I don't know. Surveillance. I mean, even if you put aside lack of concern for fellow British citizens, because you've explained that, in terms of your own well-being, 
chances are in that climate you're going to get shot by the police if you don't detonate a bomb on yourself. Yes. But you just weren't thinking about that. I wasn't thinking about it. And that's what really upsets me because I didn't even consider my parents. I didn't even think, you know, what effect this would have on them. It would just completely break their hearts if something happened to me, if I was arrested. God forbid I was shot by the police, as you just said. You know, it would have completely broken their hearts, traumatised them. And I didn't even think about it. And they're Muslims too. They're Muslims, yeah. So, I mean, what's that going to do to them at the mosque as well, being exactly. the parents of someone who'd done that? Exactly. I mean, my, my, my family was sort of culturally Muslim. They weren't orthodox, if you like. I mean, they don't know this, by the way. I mean, my father still doesn't know. My mother passed away last year and she they were unaware of my activities. I mean, there were glimpses of me on TV... <laughs> demonstrations. I mean, they didn't know how to make sense of all this. When you say there were glimpses of you on telly, so th- these are the scenes we'd see of people parading around burning the American flag or whatever. Yes, yeah, so, you know, do, you know, on, in those days, when there were demonstrations outside 10 Downing Street, American Embassy, that was me there. I was there at every single demonstration, burning flags, you know, holding placards saying, bomb, bomb, UK, kill, kill, Tony Blair. I was there. And unfortunately, the way things panned out after 9-11, if you're of the beliefs that you were, you're going to have them all confirmed for you, aren't you? Because after the war in Afghanistan, of course, there was then a, a fairly unlinked war in Iraq, which did look a bit like the West. Yes. Bombing Muslims that, for no particular absolutely. reason. Absolutely. That, that, you know, that confirms the extremist mindset that the, war, that the world is against Islam and Muslims. Absolutely. When they invaded Afghanistan, all of my friends went abroad. And they said, you know, you have to come with us. You know, Mullah Umar, the leader of the Taliban, is Umar Mu'mineen. He's the leader of all the Muslims. He's the caliph of all the Muslims. You should, you should come and join. And I think at the time I didn't go because I was married and I had two children. And that was pulling me back. But had I not had children, had, had I not married, I would have most probably gone with them. So was that ultimately what pulled you back away from extremism, having a family? No, that wasn't it. I actually got an illness. I got um, an illness called ME, chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. And what that did was I had to slow down all my activities. I stopped going to the, to the stalls where we used to proselytize. I stopped going to the meetings and things really slowed down. I, my activity completely dropped. And at the same time, I was in contact with a person who used to be part of the organization and then he tried to reform it but it didn't work and I was in contact with him and he he was I found him an intriguing person because he was a lecturer and he was very sort of philosophically minded he'd studied all all the philosophers the western philosophers and I'd see him on a regular basis and he would he took me under his wing and he kind of broadened my horizon he got me to think critically about the world and to see it in a more nuanced way and I think that was I mean those two factors I think contributed to me sort of leaving the organisation So I mean it's interesting to me that as someone who was at university anyway you're a clever bloke Yeah. that it took a lecturer then to take you to one side and make you see another point of view I mean the other point of view was all around you all that time and you could have seen it anyway I don't think it was all around me Um, and going to university I mean I was studying IT that didn't equip me to to think about you know ideologies and worldviews. Most jihadist recruitments are of engineers 
you know, these are, these are edge, over 40% or, or so of extremists that have taken the jihadist route are actually people who have gone to university. I mean, the far majority are engineers. And, you know, very few of them, if any, have studied philosophy, let's say. So, yes, I was educated, but I wasn't equipped to deal with those kind of questions and those kind of views. Because you now work in the field of anti-extremism and often a view you hear about tackling extremism is there's a whole community in this country that feel let down, they don't feel part of the community, we need to help them, we need to talk to them, we need to encourage them to feel British. But sometimes you hear that and you think, yeah, but actually, as you say, a lot of these people that are affected in that group do end up going on to university anyway. If they're, you know, sort of ethnically Muslim, as it were, then they tend to be from a section of society where their family are encouraging them to read and study and go on and get mm -hmm. good jobs. If you were to analyse the statistics, it's people from poor white backgrounds that are more likely to be left behind in that sense economically. Yes. So it's not as simple, is it, as just saying, feel part of society, because these people are part of society. They, they go on to university and they get jobs and they earn money and they have families. Mm. So what's going wrong? There are many, many factors that contribute to radicalization but i i believe that ideology shapes those factors one of the diff most difficult things for us to understand is how is it that people that are born and bred in this country can turn against that the very very same society and turn against its own citizens for me it's very clear it's not about sort of being disenfranchised it's not about coming from a broken home. It's not about coming from a poverty-stricken background. What shapes those situations, what, what shapes as someone's interpretation of those events is how they see the world. So you have someone who is not connected to uh, anywhere in the Muslim world, like, for example, Michael Adabalaja, mm -hmm. who uh, murdered Lee Rigby. He's not linked to anyone in that, in that part of the world, and yet he's on the streets of London talking about, you know, if you kill our people, we kill, kill your people. What mm. is he talking about there? You know, he, and he refers to the Quran. He said, uh, well, uh, an Old Testament text, you know, an eye for an eye. He's referring to an ideology. He's referring to a worldview, which then creates action in the way that we saw on that terrible day. But you're not saying don't talk about the Old Testament, don't read the Quran, you're no, still a practicing Muslim. So what's, what's the bit that's going wrong? There is a, an interpretation of Islam that seems to have gravitas and appeals to these young people because on the surface it looks very authentic. And young Muslims don't have the tools to dissect that worldview. And that's the problem. Because what it does, it takes the fact that, you know, there is a prophet called Prophet Muhammad. It takes facts that he established a governance. It takes fact that he ruled by Sharia. It takes fact that he introduced some kind of punishments. And doesn't contextualise that. And, as, and that was thousands of years ago. And yes. In a different yeah. And what yeah. they also do is then they frame that with an extremist framework. And then you have extremism. Then you have ISIS and so forth. And the thing that concerns a lot of just moderate people of all religions and secular here in Britain is when you do see an event like in Paris, the Charlie Hebdo attack, and you get those surveys, don't you, of ordinary people saying, do you sympathise with the anger that was felt by the terrorists when they murdered people for drawing the Prophet Muhammad? 
And those surveys are always disquieting because they do come back from the very people, moderate Muslims, who say, I would never, ever get involved in terrorism, saying, nonetheless, I understand the anger they felt. Mm -hmm. And of course, you understand that theologically. Yes. It is very problematic to draw a caricature of the Prophet Muhammad. I'm not going to draw a picture of the Prophet Muhammad. I understand people's sympathies and, Mm -hmm. and anger. But on the other hand, I'm living in the West. We're allowed to mock religion here. Mm hmm. I should be allowed to draw a picture of the Prophet Muhammad. I shouldn't feel that's such a taboo, I can't do it, because actually the values of liberal democracy should be more important than people's religious sensitivity. You just have to take their sensitivity into account. How do you square that? On the surface, there's an incompatibility, but it all comes down to the way in which you understand the Islamic faith. If you understand the Islamic faith as a closed system that functions outside of rationality it it almost has its own peculiar type of truth then there is this contradiction but if you understand that islam is the manifestation of those virtues of those rights of liberty freedom freedom of choice democracy that islam is built upon those ideas then it's then there's no problem if we understand that Islam is based upon values and the manifestation of those values in 7th century Arabia is what that, that is actually what that is. It's a manifestation. It's not the eternal law. And that that manifestation in today's society will be different. If we understand that, then we won't have that problem. And so that's part of the fight that you're trying to win now. Yes. It's, it's not just a case of saying, don't go and join ISIS. It's, it's saying to no. everyone. No, that's a very good point, because there is a kind of vacuum at the moment within the Islamic sort of communities. There's no kind of authority to guide religious education, if you like. The, you know, the, before, you know, the Islamic civilization was destroyed. Uh, but during the Islamic civilization, there were these mechanisms to counter extremists. You know, they would rear their ugly heads throughout history. There were many of them. But they will always be clamped down. They will always be met with a force to curb their zealousy. But when, once the Islamic civilization was destroyed, we don't have those mechanisms. So there is a kind of vacuum there. Now, not every Muslim is inclined to... ISIS, Al-Qaeda, you know, Bin Laden's worldview. But the problem is that the Bin Laden, ISIS ideology is based upon theological precepts that already exist. So they're extreme manifestations of these noxious theological precepts. And the long-term project to stop extremism is to challenge those precepts. And when you look at these kinds of events that are happening now, terrorist events and that sort of thing, it seems to me because of the internet, we're living in a world which was like the one you describe in the 1990s, mm, except yes. times a thousand, because it's around these people all the time through social networking and their mobile phone and everything else. Yes, absolutely. Look, in my day, the only way we could obtain information like extremist literature would be a leaflet. You know, we would be on the high streets giving out DVDs and leaflets and to push our message. Now we have this social media, this machine. And not only that, we have the extremists that are so social media savvy. They know exactly how to use it. I mean, ISIS produce, it was documented, you know, on average, a thousand pieces of video content every single month because of social, the power of social media. And studies have shown that individuals that only engage with people of the same mindset they don't maintain their views. What happens is they become increased and 
amplified, so become more extreme. It's very cliquey. You, you know, you only join those groups that, that you believe in. You don't interact with any other group. That's the power of social media. And also that sort of blurring between the content producer and, and the reader. Well, you can contact them directly, can't you? Exactly. It's more than just a concern, isn't it? It's actually, in a way, isn't it undefeatable? I mean, obviously, you've got to do everything you can to try and combat it. But let's say ISIS do disappear, and signs are good, actually, aren't they, on the ground that they're, they're retreating from territory at the moment. But you're not going to defeat that idea. That idea will exist on social media and multiply, won't yes, it? Yes, we were saying this. We, we, we thought that extremism ended, terrorism ended when bin Laden was killed. Everyone was cheering and celebrating, thinking, oh, that's it, our job's done. No, you can't kill an idea. The only way that you can defeat extremism, or Islamist extremism, if you like, is you make it redundant and irrelevant. That's the only way. And what we're doing now is... We're fighting a battle 30 years from now. So it really is imperative that we implement the idea that prevention is better than cure. How are you going to tell your children about it? Well, this is actually quite recently, I I did a a sort of mini documentary on my my experience and I showed it to my kids. And um, my daughter looked at me and said, Dad, you're an extremist. And I said, yeah, unfortunately I was. And I had to sort of explain to her what had happened. And I think it's important for formers to speak out. Because if we don't speak out and actually reclaim the Islamic intellectual space, I think other people will do that. And they may misrepresent it. We need Muslims need to be coming out and reclaiming that space and talking about their stories because extremism doesn't just make you believe nutty things. It has an immense social cost. I've lost great portion of my youth to extremism. If you enjoyed that interview and you'd like to hear more surprising, in-depth, one-on-one conversations, then please donate to the show. It is free to download The Modern Man, but it is not free to produce. We do not have corporate overlords. We are making this show ourselves. And we choose to turn down promotional interviews and circuit celebrities. We choose to do interviews face-to-face and travel to meet remarkable people all over the place and bring you their stories. That is why this show sounds different. So if, like me, you think that independent voices in podcasting are important, support us and help us in our goal to make this show year-round. Why not pledge to give us less than a quid per episode? £3.31 a month, the price of one beer. Simply visit modernman.co.uk and click Beer Money. Thanks. It's time for the happy ending, which is The Foxhole with Alex Fox. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ollie. We've had this email in from Phil, who says, um, regarding last week's show, he says he loves the foxhole. Uh, I normally adore Alex's segment. My segment is very adorable. Uh, However, uh, last week I was a bit pissed off listening to Alex talking about female-friendly porn when she used the word queer twice. Uh, He says, uh, I found this surprising but also demeaning. I'm not a militant gay man. I don't find much offensive. But in this day and age, hearing someone describe same-sex or gay porn as queer porn really did annoy me. 
I hope you don't use the word again. Gay, same sex, homo, that's all cool. Queer is not. Alex, you have the floor. Okay. Well, first up, Phil, thanks for getting in touch. I'm really sorry that you felt offended by my use of that term. It's obviously never my intention to hurt or upset anybody on the show. Quite the opposite, in fact. Um, It's often quite difficult to pick your terminology when you're talking about things like sexuality or gender identity or related topics because there is this difficulty that there are words that some people really like or have uh, reclaimed and those same words other people can find quite upsetting. In terms of the word queer, while it does have a background, a history of being used as quite an offensive term, uh, as a slur against gay people and, and, and indeed other people, these days, at least in the UK, it is commonly used in a very positive way. Well, that's where the Q comes from, right? Actually, LGBTQ. Actually, originally the Q was questioning, although oh. some people do use it for queer. Yeah, okay. um, The word queer nowadays is commonly used uh, to describe forms of art or artistic material that relate to all different types of people uh, within the spectrum of LGBTQ. So, yes. And last um, week you were actually, the context was you were talking about queer porn, quote unquote, and presumably the artist you were describing, that's how they describe themselves and the work they do, right? Yes, I was talking about the Crash Pad series of porn. Uh, the people that produce that themselves describe it as queer porn, and they're quite proud to do so. The reason they don't use terms like gay or homo, which in itself I think some homosexual people would find problematic, is because queer porn covers things like uh, bisexual folk or lesbian folk or transgender folk or gender fluid folk. So actually by saying queer, you encompass more than just the idea of being gay. The term is uh, commonly used for things like there's a queer film festival uh, that's gone on very recently at the Southbank Centre, I believe. Uh, You can have queer studies at university, so it's an academic section within itself. I do recognise, though, that it is still a problematic term for some people. Uh, However, on this occasion, I did intend to use the word in, uh, in a positive and reclaiming sense. Okay, fine. Let's step out of the minefield and into the foxhole. Uh, We have this week's listener question, sponsored by mycondom.com. Remind us of their amazing service, Alex. Well, they do many, many things, including sell little plastic condom cases for just 80p. Uh, These are a much better option than keeping condoms in your wallet, where um, if they get repeatedly bent and folded, it can can actually, yeah, can damage the packaging. I remember that from sixth form sex education class. Do you? That was a factoid that really stuck in my mind i don't know why because i wasn't getting any but you know i was very wise on how to carry them around were you also told about being careful not to keep condoms in warm places because i still see people keep uh keep their rubbers in places like the glove compartment of their car or in bathroom cabinets right next to the pipe carrying the hot water and those really warm places can actually damage condoms too i was not told about that but again another fact that has reoccurred to me some 20 years on we were told specifically not to use the uh, condom pocket in your jeans you know Levi's have that little watch pocket that sometimes is actually called condom pocket if your condoms aren't in a rigid container then the packets that they're inside can get damaged and then unfortunately that can cause problems with the condom itself uh, anyway this week's question is from Mark from York who says my wife and I are roughly the same height which has proven a bit tricky when it comes to being a little more experimental with our sex positions and techniques. Some positions that worked well with previous partners, like spooning, standing, can seem physically impossible, and we want to stop resorting to our favourite moves. 
he's too discreet to say what those are. Uh, can Alex offer any tips or positions that work well when partners are of a similar height? There's lots that I can offer to help here, uh, although I'll confess I usually hear the opposite. I usually hear from people whose partner is a wildly different size to them, so one person's really tall and one person's really short. And, and that's, that's a lot harder, I imagine. It's particularly difficult for 69ing, yeah. yeah. If, if one person is a little bit dinkier than the other, then you can end up with a scenario where they're essentially scurrying back and forth, like some sort of a nookie Newton's cradle, just <laughs> going back, backwards and forwards. But same-size couples, this can be a problem as well. Well, so, apart from the 69, which is absolutely perfect for you, the staircase in your house might actually prove to be an actual stairway to heaven for you because an easy way of making your uh, female partner taller or shorter than you is to move her up and down, or indeed you can move yourself. And if you have a staircase in your house... <laughs> I thought you were say if you have a stair lift. <laughs> <laughs> you could also do it on a stanner. I'm sure uh, there are people who do. Uh, and of course, taking sex out of the bedroom automatically helps to spice it up for a lot of people mm. as well. So you've got that added boner bonus there. Useful um, to have a banister or a handrail, I imagine, though. Open plan stairs, bit dodgy, isn't it, if you get taken away with the moment and you end up crashing down them. But speaking of uh, getting a good grip on stuff, one thing that can be really difficult for partners of the same height is having sex standing up. Mm. And particularly if you're in the shower, if you have a shower cubicle and it's, it's difficult to sort of manoeuvre around, you can buy support grips and even like little foot stands that have suction pads on them specifically to use in your shower so that if you're finding it difficult to have beautiful wet splotchy squidgy sex because uh, you need a little bit of hand maneuvering then that's exactly what those things are there for excellent advice so you could look into that have you heard of liberator ramps ollie um no. Nothing to do with skateboarding. I, I haven't. Yeah. Enlighten me. Uh, they're like pieces of triangular foam. In fact, you can get them in other shapes now uh, with a washable, comfortable cover on them. You can get them in various finishes. And they're designed to be used, you can put them on the bed or on the floor or on the sofa, anywhere you want, mm. to enhance positions. For a start, they're designed to help lift a woman's pelvis so that her hotspots more easily get stimulated during standard sex positions like missionary or doggy. Um, but they're particularly useful for people who are having difficulty because of their heights. Um, they just give you that little bit of extra, an extra hand achieving the right angle of dangle, shall yes, we say. So that's understood. something to look into. And are there sexual positions, you know, that are super mainstream? I mean, he talks about his favourites. You've mentioned two there. Let's assume that they're amongst them. Are there you know, straightforwardly accomplishable sexual positions that don't rely on which height you are and, and should be something they could try out. Mark doesn't say whether he's a particularly short gentleman or whether his partner is particularly tall, but presuming the latter, if she has really long, luscious, lovely legs, then why not incorporate those within your sex life by uh, doing things like if she lays on her back and actually puts her legs over his shoulders, provided he's comfortable with that, that will give him really great access to her G-spot. So that's a really easy way, well fairly easy way of having fairly straightforward sex that should work for them uh, if they want to make things a little bit more crazy one of my favorite positions is called the bouncy asshole <laughs> and Go this on. involves 
a gym ball. You know those pump-up inflatable gym balls? Yes, we bought one just before we gave birth. Probably a very different purpose, but, you know, same thing. Well, you could recycle it now, Ollie, if you feel so inclined. It's just in the garage at the moment. It's a very sexy place in there. No, the bouncy castle involves if Mark actually sits himself on the gym ball. Make sure it's not so hyper-inflated that you just go pinging off to Timbuktu. But if he plunks his bum on the gym ball and then has his partner straddle him, then because their legs, I'm assuming, are around the same length, this Mm. will be particularly easy for them to achieve. To hold their balance. And they can, yeah, yeah, provided that they have fairly decent core strength they can then (laughs) bounce up and down on the gym ball and it's a really lovely way to make love and with those gymnastic endeavors alex uh we wrap up another edition of the foxhole remember to wrap it up before you slap it up if you don't want an sti or unwanted pregnancy kids very wise advice as it is indeed to uh visit mycondom.com to get a discount what do people have to do if you type in the code foxhole then you get a whopping great 15 percent off everything you purchase that is a bouncing discount, isn't it? In the style of the bouncy arsehole. And if you have a question for next week's show, then all you need to do is what? Sproying on over to our website, which is modernman.co.uk. And that's man with two ends, not one. It's buy one, get one free on the ends. And then click feedback. And you can ask me any question you wish. And with that, your weekly dispatch from Man Towers is very nearly at a close. But there is time to squeeze in a Mambassador, Bathanway in Dubai. Uh, Bathanway has posted, I got into podcasts thanks to Ollie's other show, Answer Me This, and I've never found anything better than The Modern Man. Five stars. Uh, Very flattering, Bathanway. Thank you. If only the millions of fans of all those highly polished American storytelling shows were so easily pleased. Uh, Anyway, I now pronounce you Manbassador for Dubai. Uh, If you'd like to be a Manbassador, just leave us a review at itunes.com slash M-A-N-N and thereby tell the world about this show. Spread the love. Our theme music continues to be by those musical wizards, Django Django. Hear more on their two great albums. And stand by for our record of the week. It is by Hamilton Lighthouser and Rostam. It's called A Thousand Times, and it's out now on Glass Note Records. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. I had a dream that you were mine I've had that dream a thousand times A thousand times A thousand times I've had that dream a thousand times Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.